Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. Sometimes the pressures of life become a little too much, and the methods of escape we choose to cope with them aren't exactly the best ones. Overindulgence with and reliance upon drugs and or alcohol is never, ever a good thing. And when you get so far down that road, you need help. When you're a musician, you have to deal with a whole new set of circumstances that ordinary people never see. Long days, weird hours, bad food, poverty, groupies, hangers-on. Or maybe you've struck it rich and you can't handle the fame. Or maybe you love the fame a little too much. You like living in your bubble of unreality where people are afraid to tell you no and are only too happy to let you indulge in whatever you want, no matter how crazy. Sometimes people seek help on their own. Sometimes they need a little encouragement to get the help they need. What you're about to hear are some rehab stories about artists who took their lives to the edge. Some were able to step back and some, well, you'll see. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. They tried to make me go to rehab, I said no, no, no. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, no, no, no. I ain't got the time. And we had to play that, didn't we? Amy Winehouse. Highly talented, critically praised, commercially successful, but an absolute train wreck of a person. Mental health problems, bulimia, cutting, issues with domestic violence, public drunkenness, crack, heroin, ketamine, coke, ecstasy. She underwent psychological and psychiatric counseling and was on drugs for alcohol withdrawal and anxiety. She was diagnosed with early stage emphysema at age 24. She had given up drugs and alcohol for a couple of weeks, but she binged out in a major, major relapse, and that led to her death. Now, contrary to what the song says, she did go to rehab several times, the last being in late January 2008 for two weeks, but that wasn't enough. And it was that relapse that I just mentioned that led to her death by alcohol intoxication on July 23, 2011. She'd been sober for almost two weeks before her death, but three days before she died, she told her doctor that she'd started drinking again because she was bored. The coroner's report concluded that she spent her last hours drinking vodka alone in her bedroom while watching YouTube videos of herself. She drank so much that she stopped breathing, and she slipped into a coma, and then she died. She had a blood alcohol level 20% above what's usually fatal. She was last seen alive, lying face down on her bed by her live-in security guard at around 2.30 in the morning. When he returned at 3 p.m. the following afternoon, she hadn't moved. That's when he called the paramedics, but of course, by then it was much too late. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and we'll call this episode Rock and Roll Rehab, The Priory, Betty Ford, Sierra Tucson, Exodus Recovery, Pasadena Recovery. These are all places where rock stars go for help. Most of the cases that we'll discuss on this program have happy outcomes. 
But then there were those, like Amy's, which don't. If rehab centers gave out loyalty points, the Red Hot Chili Peppers would probably have enough to fly first class around the world about a hundred times. But let's just focus on singer Anthony Kiedis, otherwise we'd be here for hours. When he was a kid, Anthony was sent to live with his dad in Los Angeles. Blocky, that was dad's name, was a bit actor who had a drug operation on the side. By the time he was 12, Anthony knew how to roll the joints and how to grow a fingernail so it could be used as a Coke spoon. By 14, Anthony had tried heroin. When the Chili Peppers got going, so did Anthony's drug habit. Heroin really was his thing. You know, smoke it, snort it, inject it, whatever it took. He'd disappear from recording sessions for days at a time. He was a full-blown junkie buying his stuff from some gang types under a bridge in downtown Los Angeles. We'll get back to that. His first serious trip to rehab left him sober for five years. But then there was a relapse in January 1994 when he had a wisdom tooth removed and the dentist put him on narcotics for the pain, which was a really bad idea. Valium and Percodan led back to cocaine and heroin. That went on for about a year before he checked into the Exodus Recovery Center in Marina del Rey, California. He'd get straight, then relapse. Back to rehab, then relapse. This went on until about 1997. A trip to India put him in a spiritual place. And when he got back to L.A., he checked into a last-chance rehab place called the Impact Drug and Alcohol Treatment Center in Pasadena for about a month. This is a place that has hosted every member of Motley Crue and also Brent Gerowitz of Bad Religion. He, by the way, used to have more drugs smuggled into him inside the rehab center that were inside hollowed-out fruit. Seriously. This visit seemed to really work for Anthony, and it did, for a while anyway. But then there was a bad motorcycle accident, a really bad one, that led to codeine and Percocet and Oxycontin. But because his body had built up such a tolerance to these chemicals, nothing really worked. And the pain of nine months of physical rehab for his shattered arm were extremely painful. On his 35th birthday, this would be November 1st, 1997, he checked into a rehab unit called Steps. No luck again. But finally, by the end of the decade, he'd kicked all his habits and remains clean as far as we know. He's still not the healthiest guy in the world. All that IV drug use resulted in a case of hep C, but at least he's still alive. Don't know how, but he is. Back to that bridge in Los Angeles where he bought his drugs. He's never said where that bridge is because he's afraid that it might become some kind of weird fan shrine. But some detective work has narrowed it down to one in MacArthur Park that leads under Wilshire Boulevard. At the same time Anthony Kiedis was having his issues with drugs and failed attempts at rehab, Dave Gahn of Depeche Mode was doing a pretty good job of killing himself although he never quite managed to do it, even though he's come close four times. This is why Los Angeles paramedics call him the Cat. Seriously, that's his nickname. Heroin was Dave's thing, starting in about 1991. After moving to L.A. and meeting the Jane's Addiction crowd, he and his wife Teresa set about living the rock and roll lifestyle. Just to put things into perspective, one of the gifts they received for their wedding was a lump of black tar heroin. His appetite for drugs was so great on the Songs of Faith and Devotion tour in 1993 that he even scared the guys in the opening act Primal Scream. Now, if you know anything about Primal Scream and their habits, you'll understand how crazy that must have been if, if they were frightened. 
Consider this. Part of the 100-person entourage was a tour psychiatrist and a guy whose only job was to buy drugs. On that 93 tour, Dave's habit became so great that he'd spend days in a hotel room banging heroin into his veins. In New Orleans, he couldn't do the encore. Drugs had brought on a mild heart attack. After the tour, Dave went back to L.A. where he fell deep into drug paranoia. He carried a gun wherever he went, even if it was just to the mailbox. One time he did nothing but watch the Weather Channel for 24 hours straight. And then it got really weird when he began talking to his collection of stuffed animals and they began talking back. There was a stint in rehab at the very expensive Sierra Tucson in Arizona. Over the years, they helped or tried to help Ringo Starr, Whitney Houston, and Tiger Woods. But when Dave got back home to L.A., he found that his house had been ransacked and robbed. He loaded up on heroin and checked into the Sunset Marquee Hotel, where slashing his wrists seemed like a good idea. When he woke up in a psych ward, all he wanted to do was get high again. He tried to hang himself in the bathroom, but that didn't work. Then came May 27, 1996. After flying back to L.A. from New York, where Depeche Mode was working on new material, he again checked into the Sunset Marquee and injected himself with a heavy mix of heroin and cocaine. Massive overdose. At 1.15 in the morning of the 28th, somebody called 911. Don't know who, but somebody did call them. When paramedics arrived, Dave had been clinically dead for two minutes. When he got out of the hospital that time, he went straight back to drugs. But this time he felt nothing. There was no buzz at all. A court-ordered nine-month stay at the Exodus Recovery Center seemed to fix everything after that. And as far as we know, Dave has apparently been sober ever since. So far, we've covered two successful stints in rehab and one failure. Next, did you hear about the grunge band that was formed at a rehab center? Welcome back to more rock and roll rehab stories. Pearl Jam seems to be a pretty together band, but guitarist Mike McCready has a history of issues. He was diagnosed with Crohn's disease at 21, which may have had something to do with his substance abuse issues. The first came in the early 1990s, just as Pearl Jam was getting going. A lot of drugs, plenty of drinking. He'd binge, clean up, and then relapse. That went on for the first three years of Pearl Jam's existence. He says he was young and confused. He was in a famous band. He was always on the road. He had more money than he'd ever dreamed. And he lived in that bubble where the real world didn't exist. But what really pushed him off the wagon was the death of Kurt Cobain in 1994. Substance abuse and depression. Not a good combination. The other guys in the band kept saying, Mike, you're way too effed up too much of the time. You need help. So after hearing this a lot, Mike enrolled in a rehab program at the Hazelden Rehabilitation Center in Minneapolis. He needed to get as far away from Seattle as possible. This is where he met a bass player named John Baker Saunders. They bonded in rehab and decided that when they got out, they would form a band back home in Seattle. They did. And I can't imagine what the chemistry might have been like, but okay, pun fully intended there. There was Mike on guitar. He was a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. There was John on bass, who had his own issues. Singing for the band was Lane Staley of Alice in Chains, a guy who had a reputation as being the biggest drug addict in a city of drug addicts, and a guy who would later die a gruesome death from drugs, but we'll get to him. The most stable guy in the band was drummer Barrett Martin of the Screaming Trees. Really smart dude. 
bachelor's and master's degrees in anthropology, linguistics, and ethnomusicology, and an honors student. He also became a Zen artist. But somehow, it all worked, and Mad Season managed to release one album called Above, which sold a million copies. And it all started in rehab. This is from mid-1995. The river of Mad Season and River of Deceit. Mike McCready had one more bite of addiction, prescription painkillers mostly around the time Pearl Jam was recording the Binaural album in 2000, but since then he's been mostly okay. I wish there was a happy ending to the other parts of the Mad Season story, but there isn't. John Baker Saunders died of a heroin overdose on January 15, 1999, and Lane Staley, well, let's talk about him. Lane's father, was a heavy drug user, so like father, like son. As Alice and Chains got bigger, Lane had more and more money for drugs, and to say that he partied harder than most is a real understatement. And after 1991, there was some kind of tipping point where things just kept getting worse and worse and worse. By the middle 90s, he was in really bad shape. He enrolled in rehab several times, usually at a facility in Los Angeles, and each time he got sober for a bit. And at one point, all the members of Alice in Chains flew to L.A. once a week to take part in his sessions. Lane was briefly scared straight by the death of Kurt Cobain, but within weeks, he was back at it. Alice in Chains lost tons and tons of money because they just couldn't be booked for tours. Lane was way too strung out all of the time. This included bailing as the opener for a Metallica tour in 1994. The most he could do was show up in a studio for a few hours. One of the things he managed to do was the Mad Season Project. Mike McCready and John Baker Saunders pulled Lane through those sessions, hoping that being around sober musicians would produce a moment of clarity, but it didn't. Then came October 1996. Lane's longtime girlfriend, Demir Parrott, died as the result of a bacterial infection she picked up as the result of her own drug abuse. This infection entered her bloodstream and settled into the lining of her heart. By the time the doctors figured out what was wrong, it was too late. After that, Lane became a hermit in a penthouse condo, painting, playing video games, and watching TV. Oh, and he had his drugs, heroin and coke mainly, which he referred to as his medicine. They were delivered to his door by a network of dealers. There were no more stints in rehab. He was rarely seen by anyone, and after a while, no one could contact him. No one remembered seeing him. It's thought that sometime in March 1992, he contracted some kind of infection— after that many years of drug abuse and malnutrition, he had no immune system left. He got sicker and sicker and sicker. On April 19, 2002, his accountants noticed that there hadn't been any activity with his bank account for two weeks. That day, his mother and stepfather went to the condo with police. After breaking down the door, they found Lane's body. The coroner later said that he probably died on about April 5, 2002, which, kind of ironically, was the 8th anniversary of the day Kurt Cobain died. The last Alice in Chains record with Lane was a self-titled album from 1995. It contained a song called Grind, in which Lane sings, In the darkest hole you'd well be advised not to plan my funeral before the body dies. Let the sun Alice in Chains from 1995 with Grind. 
rehab did not work for singer Lane Staley. Now, since we've referenced him a couple of times already, let's talk about Kurt Cobain and rehab. Kurt stated many times that he wanted to be a junkie. He wanted to be like Iggy Pop and do heroin all day, which is something he turned out to be very good at. His first trip to rehab was in 1992, after he found out that he was going to be a father. He was there for several weeks, but in the end, the treatment didn't stick. As soon as Nirvana returned from an Australian tour, he began using again. On March 25, 1994, an intervention of friends, family, and business associates convinced Kurt that his self-destructive tendencies brought on by his heroin issues had to stop, so he reluctantly and angrily agreed to try rehab again. The choice was the Exodus Recovery Center in Los Angeles. He checked in on Thursday, March 30th. One of the other patients was Gibby Haynes of the Butthole Surfers. He and Kurt hung out and commiserated about their respective situations. The next evening, 7.25 p.m., Good Friday, April 1st, 1994, Kurt told one of the attendants that he was stepping out for a smoke. Instead, he scaled the six-foot fence and made a break for it, which was unnecessarily dramatic since under Exodus policy, he could have just walked out the front door. Soon, he was on Delta Flight 788 to Seattle, and by sheer coincidence, he was sitting next to Guns N' Roses bass player Duff McKagan, himself a junkie rehab veteran. When they landed, Duff offered Kurt a ride, but he refused. He signed a few autographs for people who recognized him and then disappeared into the night. We all know what happened next. Kurt scored some drugs, took them back to the room above the greenhouse of the place he and Courtney had on Lake Washington Boulevard, got high, and shot himself. We think that was April 5th, 1994. We heard the news Friday, April 8th. So that's Kurt's story of rehab, which obviously didn't work, mainly because he was never, ever going to face up to his addiction. Now let's look at Courtney Love. She has struggled with substance abuse for most of her life. When she acted up, her mom apparently fed her Valium at age eight. Then her biological dad, a hanger-on with the Grateful Dead, took his daughter along with him. Imagine that being your home environment. Pot came first, then various opiates through her teen years, including heroin at 16, cocaine came at 19. There, of course, was the big scandal when she became pregnant and allegedly continued to use, an issue that resulted in Frances Bean being taken away by family services for a while after she was born. Somewhere in there was a trip to Cedar sinais Chemical Dependency Center in Los Angeles to wean herself off opiates. She was clean for a while, but after Kurt died, heroin came back into the picture. It wasn't until she got the role of playing Althea, Larry Flint's junkie wife in The People vs. Larry Flint in 1996, that she got clean again. That was a condition of her getting the part, and the producers had to get completion insurance for the film just in case she relapsed. By 2004, she was back into some kind of downward spiral and began using something again, which resulted in a number of embarrassing public situations and a couple of arrests. And there was the time in 2004 when she shot up in an effort to kill herself. That's when she woke up in the Bellevue psych ward. She became an alumnus of a number of rehab centers, the Pasadena Recovery Center, a place in Connecticut called Silver Hill, and eventually she was sentenced to what was called lockdown rehab for 90 days in 2006 on the order of a judge. The place was called Beaumont, a pretty posh sort of place. Emerging from that in 2007, she claimed to be 100% clean. No more heroin, no more crack. But then again, in November 2010, while she was staying in England, 
she put out the word that she needed treatment to kick some nasty stuff. Need nurses and doctors, she wrote. So who did she ask? Marlon Richards, the son of Keith Richards. How far gone are you when you have to ask the Richards family for help with drugs? But let's give her the benefit of the doubt and take a right word that she is clean. There were all kinds of lawsuits for various things, and there's still the matter of her losing custody of her daughter because her daughter wanted nothing to do with her, but she seems to be in a good place now. Let me give you a quote from 2011. This is an interview she gave to The Fix, a publication that deals with addiction and recovery. Kicking heroin really sucked. Kicking coke was much easier. The truth is, cocaine was not a good look for me. If you Google me, there's a period of time when you can clearly tell that I'm just flying on blow. It's quite apparent. I've gone through unappealing phases where I've been sober too, but that's just because I love to play dress up. There are times when you do outrageous things just because you want to. Damn it. Or maybe you want to get some press. But cocaine is an evil, evil drug. It really effed me up in the head. But as I got older, I just kind of grew out of it. You know, I'm 46 years old. One line of blow leads to two days depression for me. I've turned to other things for my release. Oh, and back to that stint in Beaumont rehab. They took her on a scholarship basis, meaning she got a break on the costs. In the end, though, they wanted $180,000 and ended up suing her. I was just going over the list of substances allegedly abused by Courtney Love. We have heroin, cocaine, crack, Dilaudid, Oxycontin, Secanol, and various barbiturates, Adderall, Percocet, and Percodan. Wow. The good news is that Courtney hasn't been in any kind of drug or alcohol-related trouble for years now. I've met her personally a number of times. She seems to really have it together. Good. One more story, and this one has a happy ending. Trent Reznor is another guy who stood on the edge and looked down. After the Downward Spiral album in 1994, he ended up in, uh, well, a downward spiral. Depression and some sort of social anxiety disorder. The death of his grandmother, the woman who raised him, really messed him up. That led to heavy drinking, lots of cocaine, and ultimately heroin. By the late 90s, he was a mess, a full-blown junkie, and hanging around with Marilyn Manson didn't help matters much either. On the tour for the Fragile album, he mistook some China white heroin for some cocaine and ended up overdosing badly. He woke up in a London hospital. Eventually, though, he woke up to his problems and faced his addictions. He checked into a rehab facility in New Orleans and went through a severe detox. I talked to Trent about his trials in early 2005 when he was about to release the Nine Inch Nails album with teeth. He admitted to having been in a pretty dark, horrible place and needed the time to realize that he still loved music and still needed to make it. Well, the reality is that I had to spend some time getting my life in order because I'd, I'd really fallen into the clutches of addiction. And um, it was time for me to kind of face up to that fact and deal with it. You know, and come 2001, after the last tour, I was at a point where I was ready to check out. You know, I was, I, my, my soul had been crushed by uh, being an alcoholic and an addict. And... There was no denying at that point, and it had consumed me and destroyed me. And uh, there was a fork in the road, and it was either death by my own hand or from any number of other ways it could have happened, or fix myself. 
and took a moment of clarity to realize I wasn't ready to die yet. I hoped I wasn't ready to die yet. And I took the means necessary and decided I would do anything, anything to turn my life around because it was not going well. And around that same time, you know, I also, for a change, decided to put a little effort into myself. And I think ever since I got a record deal, I hadn't ever spent any time trying to take care of myself. And I don't mean physically in as much as, uh, you know, I thought I didn't need people and I didn't need friends. And, uh, you know, if I, situations would come up I didn't want to deal with, I just wouldn't deal with them. And I'd, I'd found something that makes me feel good. And that was writing music or recording or playing or touring. And so I'd use that as that was my way of dealing with everything, you know, and the end result was that closet full of uh, crap. Things didn't go away. They just waited in there. You know, I think in the mid nineties when superstardom kind of set in and I was ill-equipped to deal with that to begin with, you know, I I started relying on self-medicating to get through those things. And that made me more interesting and that made it able for me to walk into a room full of people, you know, and for a while it did do that. But, um, I had no idea what I was up against. You know, I had no idea really what was happening to me. And um, I had addressed the situation like in 97 and was kind of secretive about it and didn't want anyone to know because I felt very ashamed that I'd letting something get out of hand. And I kind of white knuckled it through the recording of The Fragile and on a pretty slippery slope. And when the record came out, you know, I thought, hey, I'm cured. It's debut at number one. And it was off to the races again. And that... Uh, then I spent a good year and a half testing to see how low I could go. And I, I found that I can go as low as I'd never want to go again. It's a miracle that I didn't die on that tour. And it was just a miserable time of being sick and sweating and vomiting and hiding and just being awful. So anyway, when I did get my act together and really learned a number of lessons that, you know, primarily humility being humble. Uh, I learned that I don't know everything and I'm not as smart as I thought I was. And the world doesn't revolve around me, believe it or not. And uh, that I don't know everything and I can't control you and everything else. Things started to get better. Things started to get a lot better. And I decided also at that time to, to kind of ease up on the pressure I've been putting on myself to continually try to outdo myself or piling on work. I know I can't get through, you know, because, uh, it was a way of not dealing with everything else in my life. And uh, I wanted to take a little time and get comfortable in my own skin and feel like I could get to know myself again, get to like myself again, because I hated myself at the end of that run. And I also was very much afraid that I didn't know if I could write anymore. I didn't know if I could write sober. I didn't know if I could, uh, I didn't know if I destroyed my brain. And I really wasn't up for finding that out a week into sobriety. I figured I'd like to see what planet I'm on and see how things work on this new, in this new world. And, you know, so I did, I took some time off. That was in 2001. And that's, you know, sh- shortly thereafter, 9-11 and the world seemed crazy. And, uh, and I was grateful to be present for all that. And I, I took care of myself and I did what I was told to do. And I, I wanted to get to the bottom of what kind of madness was at work inside me, aside from being an addict things that kind of pushed me in that direction to turn to those things to get through life and just started a lot of work on myself. Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails and Hertz. 
and since his near-death experience, he's been doing okay. Now, we have only touched on the whole subject of rehab stories. We could do an entire show just on the number of rehab centers where Scott Weiland washed out. We're talking almost two dozen occasions. Pete Doherty, the perpetually stoned British rocker, was in and out of rehab for years. He came really, really close to the edge many times. David Bowie went through a program where he and Iggy Pop exiled themselves to Berlin in the middle 1970s. Eminem, he enrolled in rehab in 2005 for prescription drug problems. Evan Dando of the Lemonheads needed help with his dependence on cocaine. Same with Jeff Tweedy of Wilco. Mike Ness of Social Distortion had a heroin problem that he managed to kick. And Shannon Hoon of Blind Melon had a drug counselor, but he wasn't able to keep Hoon from ODing and dying. It's a long list, and it only keeps getting longer. My email is alan at alancross.ca. Any correspondence should go there. My website is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day. And it comes with a great newsletter that will deliver all kinds of cool music information to your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern. It's free, and you never get any spam. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Google+. And then there are all the ongoing history podcasts. This is a great way to get caught up if you ever miss a show. Subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your on-demand listing. Thanks to Matt, the intern, for some of the research help on this show. And technical productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Art Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first and explain exactly what you guys will be doing? And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects, to sit down and hear their stories, their come-ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, 2 Chains. Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now, now now you're just bragging. Corn, <laughs> <laughs> John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it. Like like late '90s to now is still relevant. You know, like 
we broke our, our production company fella with uh, this music video for, uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake and Bieber called pop star. So it's, it's, it's been a crazy journey. And, um, there were two kids from Brampton, Ontario that, uh, went out to, you know, make art that broke out to the world. And now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay. How are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So, uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean, we're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker. So it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our, of the show was with Dave Myers. Um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. And just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done. And, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about black lives matter uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moments. And and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what, what went into to make that product. And, and that, that piece of art affair is the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. Because I've, I've always, I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? What kind of <laughs> headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things. Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah. It's, it's, and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the eighties era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era watching videos by like, Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and, uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry, like a wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys to be in this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at Architects Pods. 
Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Catex with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.